Welcome to the Jabadoo Education Podcast, Episode 10. We have to grapple with that refusal, right? What does it mean to accommodate a certain type of refusal where you don't have to confront the realities of our country? You know, and when we begin to confront that question, right, you know, um, it brings us back to this notion of duty. What then is our duty to change those narratives, to inspire new narratives, to be sure if the American dream is what we believe it is, right? If the best way to predict the future is to invent it, what is our work as inventors jointly together, our responsibility to know so that we can begin to transform together? You're listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. I'm your host, John Ruths, and I'm going to introduce you to some of the leading professionals in the fields of education, psychology, and leadership to bring you the most relevant and up-to-date tips, tricks, and tools for you to use in your classroom. Welcome to Jabadoo. Wow, wow, wow. I, I am just as speechless now as I'm sure you'll be able to hear I was during this conversation, because... Um, uh, Dr. David E. Kirkland is joining us today, and to be honest, his his passion and his emotion um, kind of caught me off guard a little bit because uh, he just exudes um, this energy that's just fantastic, and we have such a, a raw and truthful conversation um, that I actually suggest if you are up and about and you're doing something while you're listening to this and, and the podcast is kind of playing in the background, please press pause right now. Okay, come back and listen to this episode when you are stationary and you can be present and you can listen deeply as uh, he shares with us later because um, this was honestly one of the most impactful conversations I've ever had, um, both personally when it comes to my own blind spots, but also in terms of our education system when it comes to serving students of different race, of different backgrounds, of different uh, socioeconomic status, you know, you name it. Um, This conversation is just too important to be distracted when you're listening to it. So please come back when you can. Um, He brings such great perspectives and he shares so many great quotes. Um, I I just, I can't wait for you to listen to it and hopefully be impacted the same way that I was. So um, as always, you can find our show notes. Everything that we talk about is linked up. If you go to jabadoo.com slash show 10, you will find it all there. That is j-a-b-b-e-d-u.com slash show with the number one zero. I won't make you wait any longer. Let's get into our conversation with Dr. David E. Kirkland. Today, we have on the Jabadoo Education Podcast, the Executive Director of the NYU Metropolitan Center for Research on Equity and the Transformation of Schools. He has also been described as an activist and educator, a cultural critic and author, and is a leading national scholar and advocate for educational justice. Dr. David Kirkland, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. <laughs> You've got uh, quite the list of accolades. As I went through your uh, your CV, I think it was like 32 pages or something. <laughs> well, I've been busy. <laughs> yeah, so let's, let's start from the beginning. I mean, what was your, your school experience uh, coming through? Um, what were some of the activities you were involved in? Maybe some teachers that left an impact on you. Um, where, where did it all begin? Um, thank, thank you for that question. You know, yeah. um, just again, by way of introduction, I am David Kirkland, the executive director of NYU Metro Center. I'm also professor of urban education at New York University. My pronouns are he, him, his. 
Um, and I do want to acknowledge that I'm standing today on Lenape land. And I give this introduction because I think it's important for us to remember, right? Remember the collective wounds, the pains, the people that we invisibilize through this conversation. I can't begin my story, you know, without acknowledging that there is a settler colonial reality that persists to, um, today. You know, um, and so as I, you know, talk about how I got to where I am, right? And I, I wanna make sure that I acknowledge that I affirm, you know, that I show respect to this past, to this history that endures. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Um, I was raised by a single mother, an amazing person. You know, my mother's my hero. She made tremendous sacrifices, sacrifices that many people would not make in order to raise, you know, um, her children. I was her second children. She had me, uh, her second child. She had me when she was 20. Um, because my mother didn't finish high school, because she could not drive, because she did not work a job, she hustled, right? And part of her hustling was selling her body, you know, um, on the city streets of Detroit. She, you know, advanced in that career. She became a madam of a brothel that we grew up in. And she made these amazing sacrifices to take care of her kids. And now I don't tell this story with any shame about my mother or shame in sex work. My mother did what she had to do in order to take care of her kids. And though there are points when I was younger that I felt in some ways embarrassed by my mother's occupation, it was only later that I began to understood, you know, um, instead of asking a question, how could she do this to us? How can someone who loves us as deeply as she um, does not do everything they can in order to see the survival of their children? And that's what my mother did for, for me. However, choices do have consequences. Around 1985, 86, um, Detroit was hit hard by a crack epidemic. My mother became um, one of the victims, the tragic victims of the consequence of the crack ep epidemic. Um, she became a user, an abuser of this narcotic, self-medicating in order to numb herself of some of the pain that went with the types of, you know, tragic choices, you know, young Black mothers at the time were led to make. As a result, she could no longer raise us. So by the age of 12, I lived on the streets of Detroit. And it was daily on those streets, you know, um, that I made my bed. In Detroit, if you know about Detroit, it gets cold in the wintertime. Yeah. And so some of those nights were frosty, it was cold. This was the story that shaped me. It was the story that, you know, propelled me, you know, um, to want to be a change maker, that propelled me into the type of scholar activism that I do today, the type of seriousness of the questions that bind us, right? It was a teacher that I met. You know, I remember going to school one day and this teacher gave me a detention and I hadn't done anything. And I'm like, why are you giving me a detention? And she didn't answer. She just said, show up after school. So I show up after school and she pulls out two sandwiches, one for me, one for her. How did she know that I wouldn't eat again after, you know, um, the free school lunch that I was receiving? And then she gave me papers to grade. And she said, help me grade these papers. And so instead of punishment, she gave me a type of restorative justice moment, right? This circle of love that continued to cling to me for the next three weeks. She would invite me back into her classroom and every day she would pack an extra sandwich. Well, one day I break into the school because sometimes I would sleep there. Like I said, the city streets of Detroit gets cold. Mm -hmm. And I go into a janitor's closet. That's where I used to sleep. The janitor's closet had a little couch in it. 
um, and I would sleep on it. But this day I go into the janitor's closet and I see a bag with my name on it. And I'm like, oh man, I'm in trouble. But I'm a curious kid, so I go up to the bag and I open it up and it has clothes in it and water and snacks. It had apples. To this day, apples are one of my favorite foods. It was that type of restoration that a teacher made, the acknowledgement, the sensitivity, the ability to see us, that I found transformative. That teacher helped me get through one of the most important, one of the most challenging moments of my life. And it was at that, from that point on, you know, um, I became committed with the understanding that people can change lives, that the best way to predict the future is to invent it, that those who are closest to the problem are also closest to the solution. And so I wanted to be with those individuals. I wanted to see, you know, on um, the same type of hope that this teacher seeded in my life, in the lives of others through my work. I hope that answers your question. Holy cow. I, I'm sitting here with goosebumps and just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, honored uh, that you would open up that story. And, and obviously, you know, you're, you're very, you're very open, you're very comfortable with it and you, and you own where you came from. And, uh, you know, for a lot of people, that's, that's very difficult to do. Um, so I, I appreciate that on my end. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> that answers my question. Um, well, we, we can't run away from our stories. Our stories yeah. are what shape us. And those stories are truths, right? If we can't accept ourselves, we can't expect to be accepted. There's an African proverb that says, until the lion learns to write history, the story of the jungle will forever glorify the hunter. Right, the lion does have a roar and we must listen, right? So the, these stories are important. These stories are not only transformative, these stories are the elixir that is needed right now in this moment in order to break the silence, the silence that perpetuates forms of racism, economic oppression, and the other forms of violence that people see every day. It's the reason why we're on the street. It's these stories, right? And so often these stories don't get told. These stories are not heard. And so we can't texture, right, the kind of human experience, you know, um, and instead we're left with stereotypes. And, and Shimamanda Adichie says, the problem with stereotypes isn't that they're incorrect, it's that they're incomplete. And it's that incomplete information, it's the incomplete narrative that shapes our continued struggle inside of, uh, inside of Western society, inside of the United States, inside of New York, that I'm in. That's why that story is important. It's, in, it's not necessarily about, you know, just being comfortable with telling the story. There's also the duty to tell the story. Martin Luther King talks about the difference between rights and duties. You know, some things we have a duty to do, you know, um, beyond even a right. And, you know, I feel at this point in my life, it's a duty to share. Wow. Even just like, you know, little, little quotes that you, you, you said right there, are just really, really fantastic. So um, coming through, was, you said that was, uh, you were 12, right? So that would have been elementary school or middle school? I was at middle school. In middle school. Okay. Um, all right. So then uh, moving into high school and beyond. Um, um, so high school? You know, um, I go to high school, you know, um, and I met with, you know, similar protectors, you know, teachers and individuals who work within the school, you know, um, who saw an opportunity for me. When I finished high school, you know, um, I remember, you know, almost clearly not knowing what to do. You know, so I'm 17 and I'm like, what's next? You know, um, no one in my family had gone to college. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I didn't see college as an, as a, you know, an opportunity. One, I didn't have money, you know, um, and I understood that college costs money and I didn't understand much else about it. 
um, people in my community, you know, um, didn't have access to college either. Um, so I go to the Marines o- Marine office um, and, you know, I take this test and I, I get all everything right on the test. And there was this black woman recruiting officer, you know, and she's like, you got 100%. And then she gave me these cards and they had words on it like integrity, you know, determination, perseverance, honesty, dependability, things like that. Um, And she said, put these in order of importance. Uh, This was a ridiculous exercise because these things were equally important to me, you know, um, and I wanted to communicate that. So I created this circle with the cards and she said, I had never seen anybody do this before. She said, I want you to go back to your school talk to your counselor, and you need to go to college. Like her job was to recruit people for the Marines, and here she was actively not letting me go into the Marines, right? And, 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 you know, suggesting, encouraging, almost demanding that I at least give myself some other options. Um, And so I go to my counselor, her name was Miss Carol, and she gives me, you know, um, a set of college applications. And I said, well, I can't afford you know, um, the application fee. Some fees were 25 bucks. There are other fees that were as much as $75 and I couldn't afford the fees. She had one to Michigan State University. It had a waiver. You know, she helped me fill it out. She helped me fill out a FAFSA form, a financial aid form, you know, um, and the rest is history. Yeah. Uh, so you went to Michigan State. Um, you came out and you then uh, became a teacher, right? For a few years. I, I did. I did. So I went to Michigan State. You know, um, and again, because there had been so many teachers, you know, who seeded change in my life, you know, I just saw teaching as the most revolutionary, you know, um, type of profession. I believe, like Steve Biko said, that the most potent weapon of the oppressor are the minds of the oppressed. As Carter G. Woodson said, if you control a man's thinking, you don't have to worry about his actions. You don't tell, have to tell him to go out the back door. He'll go without being told. And if there is no back door, he'll cut one out for his own special benefit, for his education makes it necessary. Right? For me, the battleground you know, for justice, the battleground for transformation, social transformation, ground zero, right, you know, was in schools, was in our classrooms, it was between the ears of our students. And so being an educator meant that I was, you know, dedicating myself to this most important work. You can't have a great doctor unless that doctor has first a teacher. You can't have a great attorney unless that attorney first has a great teacher. And so I go to Michigan State University to become a teacher. Um, and that's what I did. You know, um, I became a teacher. I taught, you know, um, for several years. Um, and in the course of teaching, I found out that I was part of a system that wasn't necessarily designed for social change, but social reproduction. So often, you know, um, we talk about broken students, but while teaching, I understood that it wasn't the students who were broken. Our babies aren't broken, but too often our systems are. And unfortunately, as a teacher, there was little that I could do in order to, you know, um, repair this broken system, this system that disproportionately suspended black and brown bodies, that disproportionately labeled them as special education because they didn't conform to the norms of whiteness. You know, um, I was part of a system that locked in place, you know, um, forces of push out that did not provide, you know, equal access to education and yet legislated, justified, and legitimated you know, this myth of meritocracy, you know, that maintained the larger, you know, um, narrative of inequality that we see in society. 
I was part of that system. You know, um, and it hit me when this one student, Sean, you know, um, got suspended from school. Well, Sean was my student, one of my favorite students. Sean was the type of student, you know, um, who just loved to talk. He had this social intelligence that too rarely we appreciate, you know, within schools. And, and we certainly do not appreciate it when it comes from black males. You'll sit Sean in a classroom, sit him in the back of the room. He'll talk, you know, to everybody back in the back of the room. Put him in the middle of the room. He'll talk to everybody in the middle of the room. You, you bring him up front and he talks to everybody up front. Hell, I even, you know, put him next to me and he talked to me the whole hour. <laughs> He was just that type of jovial kid. You know, he knew how to command attention. You know, um, he wasn't the best student. He had like a C plus average, but he was going to finish high school. However, you know, he didn't. What happened was Sean, within this community that I was teaching in, there was a forum around age profiling and race profiling. And the local news channels had carried it. They'd invited, you know, um, students to be part of it. In the school that I was working at, they invited only the, the, the students who did well, who accommodated the school structure. They didn't invite students like Sean, who were, you know, deeply and directly impacted, you know, um, by some of the topics, you know, um, that this forum would cover. So Sean decided that he was going to be there, even though he wasn't selected, which <laughs> meant that he would skip school. And Sean being Sean, he found the mic. You know, um, yeah. and he began to speak his truth and he made some disparaging comments about the city and about the school. And these things went live. They were carried on the news channels. And as a result, the school suspended him. Mm -hmm. um, and since he was, you know, I'm 16 and, you know, he wasn't well liked by many of the teachers. They labeled him a troubled kid because he had this gift of gap. Yeah. They kind of forced him out of school. So his suspension turned into an expulsion. You know, um, and while being expelled from school, while being out of school, Sean caught a case, ended up in jail. Another tragic victim of what people have called the school to prison pipeline, what I've called the school to prison nexus, or better yet, just prison. And I began to fight fiercely against the school. And I wanted the school to see how it was complicit in manufacturing the reality that Sean was living out. But there are few in the school who could hear me. They were more interested in, you know, protecting the peace, you know, building compliant individuals, you know, um, who maintained the status quo as opposed to, you know, loving and creating conditions that could hug us, that could hug, you know, students like Sean. And when I found that I couldn't fight, you know, that my arms were too short to fight yeah. against, you know, this monumental system, you know, I went back and I got a PhD. Yeah. Uh, just having not been exposed personally to the the story that you're sharing and, and the realities of, of that story, uh, you know, it, it's it's always shocking to me uh, to hear, you know, stories like yours and, and the kind of things that that you've gone through. Um, you know, it's it's almost hard to respond in, in an appropriate way. Well, well, it is hard to respond in an appropriate way because people shouldn't have to go through these things. Like, to be sure, you know, my story isn't, you know, um, a matter of chance that my story was baked into, you know, um, the DNA of our nation. Yeah. That, you know, racism is real, that systems of economic, racial, and geographic oppression are real. 
that, you know, these narratives are not a consequence of, you know, poor decisions made by individuals. These narratives are spun from the DNA of white supremacy and anti-Blackness, you know, um, that persists to cause a momentum of racism that we see within society. That's why we get patterns of these narratives across populations. They're not random occurrences. They are very much as American as apple pie. I am surprised sometimes how fresh the wounds are in our country, um, just because it wasn't part of of my reality growing up. So um, learning about it now, it definitely it stings because those wounds are very fresh. And um, there's a reason why uh, old old habits die hard. It, it's it's the way you know you're, you're in a rut, and it takes a lot of momentum and a lot of effort to get out of that rut. Um, and Wow, I just I feel so inadequate uh, responding to your your passion and your level of energy. Well, I think I think a few things. One is is that we have to recognize that there are huge swaths of our population that unfortunately are indifferent to you know stories of racial injustice, sure. the persistence of you know oppression within our society. Just huge swaths of our population, right? And the question isn't, you know, wow, I didn't know. The question is, why don't we know, right? Right. Ralph Ellison, an invisible man, you know, he says that I'm invisible, not because I'm not flesh and blood, not because I cannot be seen, but because people refuse to see me. We have to grapple with that refusal, right? What does it mean to accommodate a certain type of refusal where you don't have to confront the realities of our country? that our country can and often, you know, do shape narratives, you know, um, that are far different than the vast majority of white Americans who live in our, live in the country. You know, and when we begin to confront that question, right, you know, um, it brings us back to this notion of duty. What then is our duty to change those narratives, to inspire new narratives, to be sure if the American dream is what we believe it is, right? If the best way to predict the future is to invent it, what is our work as inventors? jointly together, our responsibility to know so that we can begin to transform together. And certainly we do have a responsibility. And so I say all that to say that we can't give ourselves a pass. We have to ask the other questions beyond it. You know, why didn't we know? You know, um, and what does that, that ignorance, right? That not knowing, what does it privilege? And what does it marginalize, right? Yeah. What are the greater consequences? And now that we do know, what is our responsibility, right? What is our responsibility to move toward, to push for, you know, um, the types of transformation to ensure that we have a society where these types of stories, you know, um, do not happen, where these type of types of stories, you know, um, are not baked into the reality of our system, because to be sure, the system works as it's been designed. Can we design another system that works better? Yeah, and I, I assume that that leads nicely into the work that you're now doing with uh, New York University and, and uh, being the executive director of uh, the research uh, on equity and transformation of schools. So um, can you tell us uh, about maybe some of the projects that you currently have going on, um, some of the research that you're doing, some of the findings that uh, you're coming up with, and then, you know, kind of what it, what it means for schools and, and what we as teachers and, and educators and principals and uh, you know, what, what should we be focused on uh, based on the, your findings? Well, well, first let me, um, well, I want to take a, a moment really and just Absolutely. acknowledge, 
you know, school in this moment. So we're talking about schooling in a moment of multiple pandemics, you know, um, the pandemic, the health pandemic, you know, yeah. um, caused by COVID, the social pandemic caused by, you know, um, the continue, continued violence against black bodies. Um, Breonna Taylor, Ahmoud Aubrey, George Floyd, countless others. You know, the economic pandemic, economic oppression that swept across the nation, right? So we're really dealing with something. Yeah. I think it would be an understatement to say that we are living through life-changing and challenging times, right? Yeah, so this is, you, not you can feel that this is this is a pivot in in world history, right? That's right. That's right. So so today I'm not going to talk about this life-changing stuff, nor you know isolate all the projects and work that we do at Metro Center. We have over 64 projects, oh, you know, wow. that are engaged in you know questions about how we can advance equity in education, how we can transform our systems. But this is what I do want to talk about. In the past few weeks, I've had a chance to speak with school leaders from around the country. Each of them has asked me for advice about how to move schools forward. And my advice has been simple. And it's been based in research, research that we're conducting at NYU Metro Center. To move forward, we must slow down, right? Okay. This is the question. Not how to continue school as we know it, but how we must... Um, do what we must do, right? What, what is it that we must do during this incredibly crucial intermission? And this is what I tell them. Based on research, this is what we do. First, we listen. There are many ways to listen, as my you know, colleagues at NYU Metro Center have suggested through our listening project. Psychologist and gender theorist Niobe Way, my friend, speaks of the science of human connection which is beginning to help us to understand the root systems plaguing our culture and our social communities. She speaks of what she calls the crisis of connection. The idea that so many of us, so many of our ideas, our systems, our fundamental human practice is shaped by disconnection. This is what structural racism is. It speaks to how systems are disconnected from the very people they may serve on the fundamental basis of race. This is what culturally irrelevant curriculum is. It is curriculum disconnected from the lives of some of its students. This disconnection shapes a far more powerful narrative of success and failure. But worse, it leads to consequences of structural and emotional violence that turns into structural forms of trauma and the kinds of threats that make education a hostile site for many of our children. So how do we connect? At NYU Metro Center, we're finding that we connect by listening thickly. And we listen thickly by doing equity audits and by using other instruments that allow us to hear from the people so that we might get crucial information about them. Because we know you can't teach someone you don't know. We have to use this time to hold things like listening sessions, um, conduct empathy interviews with students, focus group conversations with parents. We must get a sense of their experiences and their wisdoms because when we do, they tell us how we must teach them, how we must transform the world. This is why I said that stories are important. That's why I began with story. That's why I began with you know, um, the root and the reality of the people because there's something in that, there's something in those narratives that give us directions for how to move forward. So we listen, and we listen thickly, and we listen deeply, right, by making the protocols and the systems that give us time to hear and learn from those who are most impacted by the decisions that we make. 
And we know at Metro Center that this isn't the Western way. Metro Center, our sciences, seek a type of indigeneity, hearing from the people, honoring, you know, um, wisdoms that are ancient and old. In so many ways, right, the Western way is concerned with the opposite of stopping and listening. But one of the most important lessons that we're learning right now from COVID is that we don't have all the answers. Oh, yeah. That life and death quite literally depend on our ability to chart new courses. The other type of work that we're doing, you know, at Metro Center is understanding the power of partnership. And doing so, you know, we're understanding that we must resist the impulse to make decisions alone, but instead enlist the support of those with whom we've listened. Because we understand that those, again, who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution. And I can't say that enough. Mm, yeah. So the other important that COVID has taught us in this crucial intermission is that we're in this together. Hmm. The decisions that I make affect you and the ones that you make affect me. There's this African proverb or principle called Mbutu. I am because we are. Mm -hmm. This is the big picture. If we are to build brighter and bolder schools on the other side of the pandemics and the protests, if we are to find shade amidst the intense heat of this moment, we must grab hands, put all of our answers on the table and do as James Baldwin has instructed, to search deeply within answers for the questions they conceal. And once we get to the right questions together, we will be closer to getting to the right answers together. Perhaps the biggest issue with the old system right, or I, should I say the current system, is that it was not designed by all of us together for each of us. The current system seems to work well for the people who designed it, but it works horribly for those of us it was imposed upon. This is Sean's story. In some ways, this is my story. And the third thing that we're doing at Metro Center is galvanizing the evidence around collective action to understand what it is and what we must do. We're learning that the first part of collective action is understanding how to curate an experience that starts with an acknowledgement that something has happened and indeed has always been happening to our most vulnerable people. The system is a historical and social artifact. It functions again as its designers intended, shaped by the weaker impulses of those designers. It clings to the dark cosmetics of social hierarchy tainted by sexism and racism, language oppression, economic oppression, and other social, economic, cultural, and political forces of violence, which are real. Each of these has had historical consequences that manifest in our schools and magnify over time and continue to this day. The acknowledgement of this, this truth telling that I'm talking about, means that the first steps of our collective action must be about locating these wounds that we might focus on healing them. But not just the broken body of those of us who have suffered or who are suffering, but the healing of the broken soul of our school systems. How can we turn the lens of trauma-informed care onto systems? to see where and when they are sick and hurting our children. To be sure, again, our children aren't broken, but indeed our systems are. So healing the system will take time. 
So become becomes another lesson. So when we go back to school, I've been, you know, offering evidence to, you know, individuals on podcasts and other places. When we go back to, you know, the physical classroom, it must be okay if we do not go straight into the curriculum. At least not until week seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, because this time spent healing ourselves will take us farther than pressing forward while sick. There is an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Yeah, I've heard that one. And I've said before, um, we have to sit with that question. What does it mean to go together? And I can tell you that the evidence is on the side of slowing down and moving forward. We did a study of classrooms recently at NYU Metro Center. One set of classrooms just jumped into the curriculum without purposing healing, without ensuring all students were equally ready to go. Another set of classrooms took time to purpose healing, to focus on um, and center students and their well-being, to collectively address the social and emotional aspects of learning before going into the curriculum so that all students were equally ready to go. The classrooms that pressed pause at the beginning ended up getting farther than the ones that just launched forward. Not only did they end up covering more of the curriculum, the students did better. Not only that, the students felt better, right? Sure. This is about experience. How can we curate better ones for our students? Because we don't want to go back to normal. We, don't, we want things to improve. And right. part of that improvement means envisioning a system or set of environments that are welcoming and affirming, where the least desired or redundant components of the curriculum are omitted. It means dealing with the idea that school is a place for a punishment for some of our students and that this punitive narrative is usually based in some of our most dangerous and biased logics. But I got another question for you. How can we help all students, particularly our most vulnerable students, experience schooling as a site of joy? Because joy is one of the basics of education. It's one of the basics of learning. Foucault says that learning is erotic. Audre Lorde suggests that the erotic can be used as a source of power, both to motivate and to entice, to transform, connect, and radically you know, heal. However, too often schooling for so many of our children, children like Sean, is constructed as a site of what Michael Dumas has called suffering. Again, how might we instead imagine a system or set of environments that center joy, where one of the key outcomes of engagement and interaction of learning itself is pleasure? I believe, and we believe at NYU Metro Center. Now, a joy-based reimagining of schooling will involve more human-to-human -human interaction, collaborative learning, less or no homework, very few assessments that are continuous in nature, and group assessments that feel less burden burdensome. A joy-based reimagining of schooling is one where we replicate spaces that center students and let go of anything that continues to marginalize, exclude, and harm them. This is the work, and this is what we've been working on. Hmm. It's just, it's incredible just just to hear all the work that you're doing and um you know the the idea of of schools having rows of students is is rooted in uh, industrialization and and factories right um and we've definitely seen a shift away from from that but I mean when I was in in elementary school I was in rows and when I was in middle school I was in rows and when I was in high school and I was in I was in rows and I'm not really that far removed from it um so it's definitely a a, a paradigm shift moving to, to what you're what you're saying but I, I don't think that there's a teacher that 
argues that they don't want students who are more engaged. They don't want students who enjoy coming to school. It's just going to be a matter of, like you talked about earlier, getting out of those ruts, getting out of those habits that uh, we've had for years and years and years that have landed us where we are today. Yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> Thank and, you. And it, it's going to be, so our schools serve a particular purpose in our society. You know, we needed ways to stratify, to justify, you know, um, to legitimate, if you will, you know, um, the economic, social, and racial hierarchy. You know, and schools are also serve that purpose. To be sure, there are some schools where students aren't learning in rows. There are some schools that have, you know, tremendous creativity that has Absolutely. tremendous innovation. If you go to, you know, um, a certain private school on 33rd Street here in New York City, you'll see not only like innovation, innovative design learning spaces where students are humanized, where students experience joy in their learning. You see these incredible resources that have been invested and devoted to these um, young people. However, if you go a few blocks you know, um, up the road to 35th Street to the local public school, you'll see a school with bars on the door. You'll see, you know, um, roles, you'll see other things that feel very punitive, that feel like prison in some ways, right? And so it, it, it's not that we, that we can't do it because we are doing it. We Absolutely. are innovating schools. We have, we do understand that, you know, creativity, that joy, that, you know, the type of eroticism that Foucault talks about is a precondition of learning. But we also understand that schools serve really interesting, you know, um, social functions within our world, within our society, and that is to reinforce hierarchies that have persisted to ensure that the powerful remain powerful and that those of us, you know, um, who happen to be vulnerable remain in that state of vulnerability. And we have to grapple with that logic because upsetting the system will mean upsetting that logic. To, to play not necessarily devil's advocate, but I, I would assume probably that some of those systems that were put in place were not put in place for that reason. It's just a matter of the the perspectives of the people who put those systems into place, right? It, do you do you agree, or is that just my own uh, biases speaking out? Well, I, I don't think it's your your biases. I think it's your optimism. You know, um, but history tells a, another story, right? That. If we, if we think about the history of American education, who could get education, it's always been a tale of you know, um, two stories. We had enforced segregation, right? Concentrated privilege against concentrated vulnerability, you know, um, that was not de, de facto, but de jure within this country, right? So when I say de jure, it was a matter of policy, that Jim Crow and Jim Crow schooling was, was policy, where you had white schools that were extravagant, that you had white schools that were, you know, um, extremely innovative, that, you know, offered amazing resources, and you had dilapidated black schools just down the road. Right. You know, um, this has been baked into the system. This is the same country, you know, um, that did not allow um, certain individuals to be educated. I'm talking about women. I'm also talking about, you know, um, formerly enslaved Africans didn't gain access to education. So you always had spun out in this country almost legitimately tales of two systems. You know, you had one system that did, you know, um, seek to advance prosperity, that did offer legitimate experiences of joy that were humanizing and affirming. And you had another system that was constructed as penalty to police, 
right? Um, and we do have evidence that there is policy that underwrote the construction of this, you know, condition, right? The construction of a tale of two systems. I would love to believe that inequity in the United States was accidental, but then I have to stare at the policy. I have to stare at the reality that it wasn't and that it has been baked into you know, um, American culture and the fabric of American culture through um, the ways that we drive policy, the ways that we make, you know, on um, decisions, the ways that we respond to pushes for equity within education. So I wish I could be as optimistic as you, you know, um, but unfortunately, you know, um, I've, I've sat with some of this history and I've sat with some sure, of this history, sure. you know, for some time and I understand that, you know, the things that we do and we maintain in education isn't a byproduct of our inability or a byproduct of chance that this is fundamentally baked into the consciousness of our country. And in order to change, you know, on um, the condition of education, we're going to have to change or confront that consciousness. Um, and it's going to be messy. Yeah. It's, it's going to, it's a, it's going to be a paradigm shift, right? Um, it's going to, it's going to take some effort getting out of that, but I appreciate uh, you calling me out on my optimism <laughs> because I, th I think I, I think my perspective is is not the only one, right? I'm I'm not the only one who has that same perspective that we want to believe that all of our leaders are are um, looking out for the best interests of everyone, right? But um, yeah, going going back in history, obviously, you know that's that's not the case um, a lot of the time, so. Thank, thank you for, for uh, your perspective on that. That's, that's wonderful. Um, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I'm so grateful for the time that you have given me. Um, this has just been a, a wonderful conversation. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add before we uh, wrap up? I just want to say thank you, John. I appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, then with that, um, let's move on to our exit ticket questions. These are the same four questions that I ask everyone who comes on the show. And I am really looking forward to what your answers are. So the first one is, uh, what book recommendation do you have uh, that teachers should go read? So I'm going to give teachers three books to read, if that's okay. okay. Absolutely. We'll, we will link all of them in our show notes then. One is Bettina Loves, We Want to Do More Than Survive. Um, I think it's a phenomenal, fascinating re um, read about abolitionist teaching, you know, um, moving beyond, you know, kind of like culturally, you know, um, sustaining culturally responsive teaching to abolitionist teaching. Again, it's our duty to transform these systems in order to benefit, you know, all of us to be abolitionists. Um, that's one. The other book that I would, you know, offer is a book that I'm reading right now, and it's Man's Search for Meaning. By Victor Frankl's popular book. Many of your listeners may know it. And what Frankl is arguing is, is that there are many things that sit outside of our control, but there's one thing that we can always control, and that's how we respond. You know, when conditions of oppression or conditions that are challenging happen to us, you know, um, we, got, we do get a choice, and the choice is in how we respond. Um, and I love Frankl's optimism, especially having endured the harshness of concentration camps, you know, and even the harshest con concentration camp, Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. uh, the other book that I would recommend to teachers for teaching or who are, think who are thinking about enlivening their pedagogy in really interesting ways is Django Paris and Sammy Alim's Culturally Sustaining Pedagogy. What Alim and, you know, Paris are arguing is that we just can't have 
you know, cur curriculum that's responsive to students and yet still has a goal of assimilating students into the status quo, that we have to sustain those students. And part of sustaining those students is accepting individuals for who they are, you know, um, celebrating, utilizing, respecting, you know, on the assets that young people come to classrooms with um, in order to make those young people feel welcomed, feel like they belong, as well as experience some form and modicum of joy. Those are my three. There you go. And uh, while we're while we're on the topic, you also have some books that you've authored, right? So why don't you just uh, you've got the podium? Why don't you just give us a quick synopsis of of maybe your your most recent one? Well, um, a search past silence: the literacy of black boys. It is a beautiful kind of ethnographic narrative about not what is literacy in the lives of black boys, but how and why is literacy in the lives of black boys. It looks at the desires, the passions, and the processes through which black males come to term with words and this thing that we call literacy. I, see, I recommend everybody reading this book. We will make sure that that is uh, linked up in the show notes so you can go check those out. Question number two, what would be a resource, either digital or hard copy, that you would recommend teachers go check out? Yes, um, so a, a resource, a digital resource that we've constructed for teachers, um, and when I say we, I mean uh, my colleagues and I at NYU Metro Center, um, that we created for teachers is on our CRE Hub website. The URL is crehub.org. Again, crehub.org. If you go to the remote learning resources or the stories, you'll come up with you know, a variety of resources that I think are important and useful for anybody who's doing education today. All right, yeah, fantastic. Um, we will link that as well, or you can just, you said it, so you can just go check it out right now. Uh, question number three would be, what one piece of advice do you want to give teachers, particularly those who are just starting out their careers? Right. But the piece of advice that I would give, you know, um, beginning teachers, especially beginning teachers, well, I think there are three things, right? Again, I, I can't just give one. <laughs> uh, the, the three pieces of advice, you know, are kind of echoed in, in today's conversation. You know, um, one is just listen, you know, do more listening than you do talking and create opportunities to listen to students. The second is partnering with students and families. In fact, to see yourselves as a partner to parents in the education of their, their children. Um, this partnership means letting go of the perception that, uh, of power, you know, um, and when you let go of that perception of power, you begin to create together. And it's something about that co-constructed, -cre co co-created world, you know, um, that transforms teaching and, and makes it more effective. And I think the last thing is, you know, kind of center healing, you know, center healing as a process of moving toward joy. Many of your students, many of our students, you know, um, are hurting because unfortunately we haven't gotten society right. And if we're gonna get schooling right, we have to acknowledge that, that those wounds, we have to acknowledge that pain and we have to create joy-based restorative classrooms, you know, um, that are trauma-informed, right? Care practices that are trauma-informed. Um, and so, you know, kind of listen, partner, and center healing. All right, fantastic. And Last but not least, uh, if anybody wants to find you or reach out to you, uh, where would be the best place that we can send them? Yeah, email me, um, David E. Kirkland at gmail.com. 
again, David E. Kirkland. Don't forget the E because if you email David Kirkland at gmail.com, there's a grumpy man who will write you back. <laughs> I'm not that <laughs> David Kirkland. So it's David E. Kirkland at gmail.com. Sounds good. And if anybody is confused about that, once again, it will be linked in our show notes page. Wow. David E. Kirkland, thank you so much for joining us on the Jabadoo Education Podcast. What a fantastic conversation. Um, yeah, thank you for your time. And uh, we will uh, stay connected and touch base and follow up then. Thank you. Boy, I, I'm, how am I even supposed to wrap this up? You know, I, I was trying to brainstorm, think of, you know, the top three things that were most impactful, and I just couldn't. I mean, the whole conversation was just so uh, meaningful. Um, I think, if anything, what I wanted to do with this wrap-up was just to highlight um, an, an, a sense of the steps that we take from here, right? Um, Dr. Kirkland kind of mentioned that uh, the one study that they've done where they had the two schools and the one school jumped right into the curriculum right away and the other school took a few weeks to really meet the social, social emotional needs of the students. And by the end of the year, the school that started with meeting those needs not only went further in the curriculum, but they had happier students, right? I mean, if that doesn't tell you anything, <laughs> I mean, it's just we need to start the school year by creating a community, by making sure our students feel safe and that we create an environment that can engage those students. And, uh, you know, if you're behind the curriculum come October, but you've spent the time to do that at the beginning of the year, I mean, kudos to you. Don't get stressed out by that because um, they will go above and beyond uh, where they are right now by the, by the time, you know, April, May rolls around. So please stick with it, um, especially uh, if you're listening to this right when it releases here with, with the COVID-19 pandemic and, and some of us being in hybrid and some of us being completely virtual, meeting those social emotional needs are going to be so important, um, continuing that conversation. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of, uh, I mentioned it on the show and, and I think he did too, but you kind of feel like we're at this, this turning point in, in our history, right? Um, but we don't want to come back the same. We want to come back better. And now is the time to make some of those adjustments and to have some of those meaningful conversations with students. So um, that's what I got out of it. I hope you got uh, as much value as I did. Um, such a great conversation. Thank you to Dr. Kirkland and all the other uh, faculty members who are doing the research there at um, New York University. Um, what a great conversation. So thank you. And for you, the listener, until next time, go teach. Thank you so much for listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more evidence-based strategies for improving your educational career, go ahead and click that subscribe button so you can get the next episode as soon as it is released. If you think this information was beneficial and you think more teachers should hear it, the greatest compliment you can give us is to share this episode with a colleague, either through a text message, email, or social media. And last but not least, if you think more teachers need to hear more of what we are talking about, please go leave us a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice, and that will simply let the algorithm know that you are finding value in this content, and it will help boost our show to the top of the list when people search for education shows. Thank you, I appreciate you, and I will see you on the next episode of the Jabadoo Education Podcast.